Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast. And today we are excited to have with us a friend from a long time ago, but a math educator for over 27 years, who currently works at the American School of The Hague in the Netherlands. And so we are going to be talking to Corey Andreessen and sort of exploring his journey to teaching in another country and also, you know, what's like there to teach in, uh, in different countries and what's COVID like over there, all of those um, aspects. So welcome, Corey. We are very excited to have you. I'm happy to be here. Corey, the, the international school at The Hague sounds so much more interesting than Sheboygan, Wisconsin. It sounds much <laughs> more interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> Although I did love living in Sheboygan, but uh, it, it's, it's a nice experience here. So in a minute, I'm going to have you kind of explain your journey from Sheboygan to the Netherlands, because I know you've, you taught in another country before the, you got to the Netherlands. But I just kind of want to first ask about, because I've experienced through some of the work I did with the Department of Defense, teachers from the United States teaching in other countries who love it. And most of them are, you know, more, what's the word I want to say, more mature educators. So they're not starting teachers. <laughs> I don't want to say, like some of them have retired, but then went and taught in another country. And and now Tim, I don't know if you know that Tim is also teaching in Bogota, Colombia. So I've got two people who are teaching from the United States, but teaching in other countries. So I am curious about the journey that got you there, Corey. Because I think other educators are doing the same thing, so I'm just curious how that happened. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, Corey, but I think I prefer the term "more experienced" over "more mature." Yes. I- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So that was the word I meant to say: experienced, experienced educators. Sorry about that. And, and you guys know me, and you know the term "mature" doesn't even apply. <laughs> true <enough. so. laughs> That's true. Good point. So Corey goes back to our key curriculum days. He was one of the amazing educators who helped with our online courses and our statistics books and things like that. So explain your amazing journey. Boy, Key Curriculum Press was, I was very sad to see them go. I mean, they yeah, they were fantastic to work with and had great materials. And so, and it fortunately brought me to meet you two as well and, and a bunch of other great people. But you guys know I've been pretty involved with AP Statistics in the U.S., and you know, working on textbooks and things like that, I had a lot of things going that I wasn't interested in giving up. And my wife had been interested in teaching overseas, and I just frankly wasn't, which she found disappointing. <laughs> I said, you know what, if you want to go do that, I'll stay here, I'll hold on the fort, <laughs> you know, go, you can go do that for as many years as you want to and come back. But she didn't want that. She wants to be with you, Corey. Good for her. Yeah. Well, there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> I was going to say, I think my mom would be like, yeah, go. Yeah, I'd, I'd have left skid marks. But um, yeah, you know, things in Wisconsin got worse and worse since uh, 2011 when they um, decimated teachers' unions. And the district I was in, Sheboygan, really did as well by the teachers as they could. But there's only so much they could do when budgets get cut the way they were. And I was starting to get ready to move on anyway, um, just ready for a change. I'd been there for a while. 
And then in 2016, there was this election. What? What election are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it was a a pretty clear sign that things were not going to turn around for the better, that it was going to get worse and on a national scale. And so I said to my wife, all right, let's go. And she had a, a friend who had just, the year before, gone to teach in Doha, Qatar, who talked about how great it was. He makes so much money, and uh, it's really, really great teaching situation. So then she said, uh, we have a math and a music opening here. My wife teaches music. What the heck? We uh, sent letters. She put in a word for us. We interviewed and got the jobs and ended up spending two years teaching in Qatar. So Qatar, was that, was that also um, like an American school for international students? No. It, it was billed as an international school, but several years before they had changed their policies so that I believe it was the only students who could attend that were not Qatari had to be children of employees of um, Qatar Foundation. So it was a very local population. Interesting. Because I know a lot of the teachers that go over are teaching in international. So they're teaching, you know, United States students that are there with their parents for whatever reason. And Tim, like, what's your situation in Bogota? Um, so ours really is uh, intended as an international school. And I'm, I'm sure I'm quite can talk about what his current experience is in The Hague. Um, so you get two different groups of students. You get students... Um, who are Colombian, who aspire to go to university in the U.S. or in Canada. And so they come to our school. And then uh, we teach about 20% of our student body are basically American kids, either whose parents work for the embassy or like oil is a thing here in Colombia. So like families who Americans who are here as expats that work for the oil companies will send their kids to our school because we do teach the same curriculum as a kid would get in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. So that must have been very, quite the change from Sheboygan school to, and you're saying Qatar. So mm-hmm. am I saying that right? I, I've heard it several different ways, <laughs> even from the natives there. Yeah. So, uh, so how was that transition? Because it's a totally different student population. I'm imagining a completely different type of curriculum. Yeah, it was not an easy transition. Uh, it was an IB curriculum. And for those who are not sure what that means. That means international baccalaureate, and I will provide a link that explains that a bit more in our show notes. Um, yeah, I was not familiar at all with, with that program, but you know, teaching math is pretty much teaching math. So, But yeah, it was a very different um, culture, very different, a lot of things that, that took some getting used to. And then on top of that, right before we made the move, the other Gulf countries instituted their blockade of Qatar. So it was kind of uncertain were we even going to be able to get there. And they were trying to transition. And, you know, the, the, they used to buy a lot of their dairy from the United Arab Emirates, but they were part of the blockade. So they had to start getting stuff other places. And it was just, there's always uncertainty. A <laughs> lot, lot of transition. So what about like language barriers or cultural barriers that you learned or? English was spoken by a lot of people there. So that wasn't too bad. We tried to learn Arabic. Arabic is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's up there with Chinese. Yeah, it was just, it was very different. But the, I mean, the people were really warm and welcoming and, and delightful. 
So, so then you're, you, you're at Qatar for two years. And so then how did you end up where you are now? Cause that's quite the, uh, change. Well, we had decided we were going to, uh, move on, decided not to go back to the U S yet. If we, you know, could find something else. So we had to find a place that had both math and music positions. And that isn't always easy. There aren't that many music positions in a school. We applied places, you know, did the search associates thing. What is that? No, I don't know what that is. It's a job placement agency for international schools. Interesting. And my wife happened to meet at a conference, one of the teachers from here, the American School of the Hague, through a mutual friend. Turned out there was an opening here. And they said, well, you want to talk to the director of our schools? He's going to be at the job fair that we were attending that very weekend. So we went to Bangkok and went to a job fair. They did not end up having a math position, but they offered my wife the music position. And we had just heard really good things about the school and decided to accept the position anyway. And then by the end of the year, a math position did open up, but it was grade five, which I had never taught before. I've been a high school teacher my whole career. Yeah, I want to hear about that. Yeah, it's a bit of a change. And uh, so I've been teaching grade five, and I'll be going back to teaching high school next year, actually. So how long, like you've been there now, a year or two years? This is my second year. Second year. So you've taught fifth grade for two years. Yeah. Okay, let's hear it. What? (laughs) That's a big transition. You know, early in my career, there's no way I could have taught fifth grade. I just didn't have the temperament for it. But having had three kids and raised kids through those ages, I thought, no, this should be fun. And it has been. It's been really great. One of the things that I found is that mostly I don't care too much what content I'm teaching if I can use it to teach reasoning and thinking. And you can really do that with almost any content. So that's actually been pretty fun. The downside of just the timing is that I haven't had a year, I won't get a year of regular (laughs) teaching of grade five, because both these years have been pretty affected by the pandemic. So it's been a constant state of monitor, adjust, (laughs) reinvent. So I'm curious, because in the United States, fifth grade is usually in the elementary schools where it's one teacher who's teaching all the subjects. So where you are, do they, they obviously must switch for subjects. Yeah. Um, it's an unusual situation, but not unheard of. My wife taught in a district where the, it was a five, eight middle school. Okay. And so here, yeah, it's a five, eight middle school. So have you learned anything in terms of your pedagogy instructional strategies that you have learned to implement as a fifth grade teacher that you see yourself carrying forward next year when you go back to high school? Well, I've, I've learned I have to be much more clear with instruction at grade five, but that's probably true at the high school as well. I, I uh, would probably benefit from putting more care into making sure the instructions are clear there as well. Yeah, I guess I asked the question, I don't know, Corey, do you ever uh, have any, any encounters with Pam Harris in our key curriculum days? Boy, the name's familiar, but I don't know. So she's, she, she did some PD and writing for Key as well, she, uh, and she was part of that family. And uh, I, the reason I bring her up because she was a high school teacher who didn't teach elementary school, but then um, had uh, stopped teaching and was raising her family and had done, started doing a bunch of research into elementary ed and elementary math education just as to be involved as a parent. And she's now written books, basically carrying forward some of the things she learned in her elementary research that are often ignored by us arrogant high school math teachers who think we know everything already, but that there's just some phenomenal 
pedagogical research around elementary math education that's easily applicable at the high school level? That's why I asked the question. One of the things that I really was excited about was um, the opportunity to try some things that I'd been reading about, but they weren't really high school kind of things, like the open middle stuff from Andrew Stottle. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking the exact same thing, yeah. Can, can you explain that a, a bit for those that may not be familiar? Well, a lot of the, his problems are developing reasoning around things that we tend to teach sort of procedurally. Mm-hmm. So they usually involve a computation where the numbers are left out and students are asked to use digits one through nine, not all nine usually, but so you might have a a sum of two fractions, fraction plus a fraction, and they have to choose numbers from the digits one through nine to put in those boxes to make the sum as large as possible or as small as possible or something like that. There's a link we can give to a, a website that has tons of free examples of these kind of tasks. They're, they're really uh, phenomenal in terms of, Corey, like you were saying, one of your primary motivations is are you teaching reasoning and those kinds of tasks do a phenomenal job of, uh, of helping build those problem-solving reasoning skills. Yeah, and it was, it was really interesting to see kids struggle with that. And some knew right away, well, we need big numbers on top and small numbers on the bottom. But others had to kind of work their way towards that. I've actually use Desmos a fair amount with the grade five, which, as you know, is an online graphing calculator, but it also has some nice uh, other features that have been developed over the last few years that make it really good for using with younger kids and really outside of mathematics as well. You can, you can build activities, you can monitor um, in real time what they're doing, uh, they can share their work with each other, and you can also incorporate you know, some powerful mathematical tools as well. I'm surprised you're not actually using um, GeoGebra since you're in another country and GeoGebra is the the tool over in Europe and all of those places. I haven't used that as much. I know they do have the GeoGebra classroom, but I learned about that a bit late and haven't um, found the time yet to uh, to figure out how to learn it. I suspect I would like that as well. Yeah, I think it, it's a little more, it's got more capabilities than Desmos. So my question, so you're teaching fifth grade and you're in an American school at The Hague. Do, do they follow a traditional kind of American curriculum or is it not that at all? Well, in the, the math department, at least, they use the Common Core. Overseas, they call it the Aero Standards, but it's the same thing. Right. Um, I can't remember what that stands for, but. You can probably look that up and provide a link as well. <laughs> <laughs> so are your students mostly, like, what, where, what's the student population? Where's that coming from? They're very international. And it's often hard to tell. One thing that has surprised me is how many of these students who are not American, or maybe they are, but have never spent any time in America, and they speak with perfect American accents. And I think that's just because they've grown up in American schools. So are most of the um, teachers from the United States? Uh, most, probably, but not all. In, in Qatar, we had a big contingent from New Zealand. So that must be interesting. It is. I mean, that, that's one of the really cool things. And there's a fair amount of turnover at a lot of international schools. Well, isn't that because some of the goal is, oh, we want to see the world, so we're going to teach a couple years here, and then we're going to go somewhere else and see another part of the world? That absolutely is part of the reason. Um, here, they have a, 
a tax break for people who are brought in for certain types of jobs. Teaching is one of them. So the tax rate here is really high, but for the first five years, you're taxed on 70% of your income. So 30% of your income is tax-free. Once that five years is up, that really goes up. Plus, um, many private schools, international schools, if you teach there, your kids can go to school tuition-free. But here, they consider that a taxable benefit. So even though the tuition is free, you're still paying half of the tuition in taxes. There's all sorts of creative ways that schools do the whole with taxes in different countries. Like I know my school, I get a third of my salary as a uh, forgivable loan in U.S. dollars to avoid in-country taxes is how they do it. So they essentially lend me a certain amount of money each month. And then once I fulfill my contract, they forgive that loan. Well, so then that must be very different because so when I was doing all that work with the Department of Defense, those teachers, because they're on a military base, they're still considered United States. So everything is just United States. And then they get extra allowances for housing and cars and the family. Like it, But it's a different experience. The DOD schools, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say better or worse. It's just different because you're right. It's much, it's very much you're teaching at Smithville High School, which happens to be located in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany. But the, in terms of how you're getting paid and the type of school, the culture of the school, because it's all American kids, so it tends to have a much more American feel versus where I'm at. And I mean, Corey, you can speak to your experience at The Hague. Um, you have a bit more diversity in terms of culture. I mean, you're still teaching an American curriculum, but you have kids from different places and they bring in their own cultural experiences. I mean, I don't know if we want to go into this segue at some point, but uh, like this past week at school has been an intriguing cultural experience for me as the school has done um, various events around the uh, recent events in the, in the States around bias and prejudice against Asian Americans. And so we've done a bit at school and all the teachers leave. We have like a advisory group type thing. And it was an intriguing conversation with my advisory students on the topic. Uh, uh, the reason I brought up that five-year tax ruling was because a lot of people leave here after five years. So one of the things about international teaching that you mentioned is you get to know a lot of people from around the world, and then they leave. And then you know people everywhere. <laughs> and new people come in. So that constant turnover of people coming and then leaving, suddenly I have friends everywhere after just a couple years of doing this. Well, Corey, can you back up and just step by step, like how do you even get started? Like you decide either A, you're 23 and want to go see the world before you settle down, which is what a bunch of my colleagues are, or B, um, you're at the other end and you've raised your kids and you want to you want to finish your career and uh, go visit interesting places and try new challenges. So if I'm just a teacher in Wisconsin, how do I even get started looking into that world? Well, you would um, usually start with one of the agencies like Search Associates or ISS, International School something. They merged with Schroll, S-C-H-R-O-L-E, which was another one. I think ISS and Schroll are one now, maybe. Links to be provided. It's difficult because you don't know what to even ask, you know, what things to look for. But there's a lot of variety in the quality of the schools, the teaching situations. We went to Qatar, and you know their salary wasn't listed as that high in American dollars. But they provide housing. There are no taxes. 
no utilities. Pretty much the only things you had to pay for were food, your phone, and entertainment, and a car if you wanted to get one. So we saved a lot of money those two years in Qatar. So when you say they provide housing, like, so I know that's also varies quite a bit depending on the country you're in. So like, what was housing like in Qatar versus housing in the Netherlands? Well, in Qatar, uh, pretty much everybody lives on a compound, whether you're uh, American or, you know, expat or not. There's these gated compounds that people live in. Uh, So the teachers for... Education City, which was the big education conglomerate that had universities and you know schools and other things, there was housing for them, and and there were apartments and there were villas. We we had a a two bedroom villa, very spacious, very nice. And when you moved in, they give you a startup package of like kitchen stuff and things like that. It was all furnished, which was great for us. Some people were coming in and you know coming from another country where they had bought a bunch of furniture, and then what do you do with the furniture that's in the apartment was a bit of a <laughs> a challenge. But then you know you go to Europe, and the pay at the American School of The Hague is better than in a lot of places, but you are paying taxes. They don't provide housing, so you just have to go out and find an apartment like anybody else would. And Tim, you get housing, right? Like so it's just very different no matter where you are. It really depends on the country and the school. So, I mean, my school is sort of a hybrid of the two. Like, I, we live in just a regular apartment, but the school fully furnishes it. And the first year, actually, the school picks your apartment for you because they want to make sure that you're in a safe neighborhood and have a clean apartment um, that's close to the school. So the first year, the school required, they get your apartment for you. And then after that, like, we're getting ready to move into another apartment next year. And so after the first year, you can move wherever you want and the school gives us a monthly stipend. And then you can decide, like the place I'm in right now is within the school stipend, so I don't pay for housing. Now next year, we've decided that we're willing to pay a little more to uh, upgrade our accommodation. So we're going we're gonna to look for an apartment. Actually, that's what we're doing after this podcast is going walking neighborhoods to look for a place to live next year. <laughs> so it really depends. And then like I, I was talking about earlier about how our school does salary, um, the schools are competitive. They know they're competing for a pool of teachers, especially. And I don't like Corey. You can speak to this as well. My understanding is that it's it's a sort of a informally tiered system. There are schools that are easier to have as sort of your first stop in your international teaching tour, and like China, um, some of the Middle Eastern schools tend to be there. And then once you get that first experience, then other schools like in Europe. Um, and some of the bigger cities around the world, then you become more attractive to those folks and you can sort of move your way up the tiers and then the um, the pay, the benefits. Corey's right. You really have to think, depending on what kind of package you get from a school, like in terms of what are you going to get for dollars? Uh, my friends here who have taught in the Middle East said the same thing Corey did. It's a great place to start if you're looking to save money because your costs are so low and you're still getting paid a, a reasonable salary versus other places um, you're going to get paid more, but you're also going to have more costs. But you get to live in a bigger city and maybe a bit of a more cosmopolitan experience. So it really depends on what what you're looking for. Well, I mean, that's what I've heard from the military, the Department of Defense folks is it's a great place because you, you are actually saving money because they're paying for your housing. They're paying, you know, like, so you actually end up saving a lot of money and you can travel and all that kind of stuff. That also depends because there are, you know, some country, the cost of living obviously varies a lot in different countries. And so some countries where they don't pay as much, but 
they have a low cost of living, you can live like a king while you're there, but you don't really save up much money. You know, what, what you save doesn't amount to much when you bring it somewhere else. Well, it's all it's in like the country I live in. Are you thinking in dollars or the local currency? I mean, like we went to breakfast this morning with a family, and so there was what six of us all together, and we all had a couple coffees and a full breakfast, and we were fighting over the bill, of which was like twenty six dollars. So if you think in terms of U.S. dollars, you're like, wow, that's amazingly cheap. But uh, I mean, my salary also reflects the fact that they know that I live in a country where um, things are pretty reasonably priced. So I guess it's just like what you're looking for. Yeah, that's really, really what it is. And there's also, like, I knew people who taught at other schools in the Middle East, in Qatar, and the teaching situations could be really different. And some of them were really awful. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean by like, like what? Well, just the way they treated the teachers. I knew somebody who taught at one of the schools and like every test that she gave, her su- supervisors would regrade the test. And if she made any mistakes, that counted against her and she could be docked pay, you know? Really, oh my goodness! Micro, yeah, just weird, weird things. So then, how do you? Okay, because I would imagine that it's pr- it's probably very competitive, especially if you're trying to get into some of the you know the in- international schools like the one you're in. How do you judge whether it's a a good school or a not a good school or a you know that type of thing? I almost hesitate to mention this, but there is a site, International School Review. Well, I think you'd want to be part of that if you're planning to, to go teach. Like, you'd want to know. Well, there's, there's there's a small fee to have the membership, and you have to take it with a grain of salt because you read some of the reviews and you can tell, here's a person who has an axe to grind. But if there are several reviews and you see patterns, then you can... Make a judgment. Yeah, make a judgment. Well, and you got to check the dates, I mean, how old the data is. And then I don't know if this is true. The schools that, I mean, I, I have the one I'm at, and then as well as others I've heard of, Unlike in public school systems in the States, the director has a lot of influence over the direction of a school. And so a school can radically change in terms of the experience of teaching there based on who's running the place. Yes. So, I mean, it might be a school. So if you look at the reviews and like the school I'm at right now, if you look at the reviews that are more than four years old, a lot of them are trashing the school and for good reason. Um, and then the school hired a new director and it is a, it's a night and day experience. The people who have been here for both regimes tell me. Right. Um, the other thing for folks considering doing this, the hiring period's a lot earlier for international schools than in the States. When I got my job, I interviewed in October and I had accepted the gig in early November. So they really hire like well ahead of time. So you have to plan, you have to know what your timing is for when you want to do this. Yeah. And ours, I think we got hired in December or January for the next year. Um, But that's another thing that in many international schools also, you have to let them know by November or December if you're leaving and you probably don't have another job lined up yet. So there really is kind of <laughs> the the leap of faith. The unknown for a few months. So I'm curious. I think Tim, you sold all of your stuff, right? You're Yeah, we so I mean, but I mean we kept a, we kept a few things. Anyway, yeah. So what did you do, Corey? We still have our house in Sheboygan. Um we are renting it out. Although that's been kind of hard when we go home and we stay at a friend's house right across the alley from the house that we own and can't use. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that would be very strange. Hey, get out of my house. Yeah, we have to decide what we're going to do with that. I mean, so what is your plan down the road? Obviously, you're another year there going back into the high school. So like, can you stay as long as you want? 
we bought a house. Really? We bought a house. So nice. we're planning on being here for a while. And so what's the real estate like there? Like, so that would be a different, another interesting comparison. It's strange. What we paid for this house, we could never have afforded back in the States on a similar salary. Interest rates are really low right now, but also just however they calculate things, our payments are reasonable. They also do this thing here where after you've paid off a certain amount, they recommend you switch to an interest-only loan where you're just paying off the interest. And my wife said, well, then you'd never pay off the house. And he, the guy said, so? <laughs> so? <laughs> you don't really want to pay off the house because you pay taxes on the part of the huh. house that you own. So then no one really owns their house? That's very odd. Not, not completely. Huh. So it's it just different. Going back to the thing about you know, the competitiveness of these schools, there, there were several times where I, the posting for the job looked like it was written for me. They were looking for somebody with experience, somebody with AP experience, maybe even AP statistics experience. And I would apply and highlight my experience at AP statistics, which you guys know is... Yeah, pre- it's pretty fast. Yeah. You're like the guru. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't get a call. And not that I think I should be a shoe in for any job or anything, but it just was odd repeatedly to not get any response at all. But word of mouth is huge in the international community. So that's why it's also really helpful. You work with people and then they scatter and then you work with another group and they scatter because having them be able to say, hey, I know this person and they'd be good. Um, gets your resume looked at, gets it picked out of a, a pretty big pile. Well, it's a marketing thing. Remember, these are private schools too. So part, I mean, Corey's right. There's definitely a, if you know someone, I, I have to admit I'm a little sad right now that Corey admits that he just bought a house because one of the questions I was going to ask him is what it would take to get him to move to South America. <laughs> <laughs> we actually use SIA. You could come teach out of SIA. But uh, so it's it's word of mouth, but then it's also how many different countries have you lived in? Because that's a marketing thing that parents understand. Like we have teachers who have taught at X number of different schools and what tier school you're at. So your resume, so you can be this outstanding teacher in the U.S., but that doesn't market necessarily terribly well to um, the Colombian elites. I mean, the reality is I cheated to get my job. I cheated the system. No, I don't think you cheated. You just used your connections. I, well, there you go. <laughs> And I, and I do I do think that matters. It's the same in the Department of Defense ones. Like it's all about connections, who you know, and getting in there for the few positions that are open. You have to. And it, like there's, it's. I mean, the other thing, Corey, I'd be here. I'm curious to get your take on this as well because you talked earlier about how teachers don't necessarily stay very long. Like at my school, there's a there's like maybe a quarter of the teachers that are what I call lifers. Like they're either native Colombians or they're. Um, North Americans who came here and either met someone or whatever and decided this is the place they're going to spend the rest of their professional careers. Um, And then the rest are folks who stay anywhere from two to five years. It makes it difficult, at least I'm finding it difficult, to have like any sort of systemic vision for instruction because you can work with a group of teachers, but then by time you really get things up that that you're, you're turning over a chunk of your department every year. Have you had that experience, Corey? Well, I haven't been anywhere long enough to <laughs> <laughs> to know because you're one of those teachers. <laughs> yeah, well, we were we taught for two years, and yeah, I hope to stick around here for a while. But yeah, it's I think it's something that's just um, it's just an expectation here. You're going to be turning over teachers, and that's like some places really want that. Uh, I have a friend who taught in China, and some of the schools there 
really don't expect anybody to stay more than three or four years. They don't encourage it. (laughs) What are the qualifications? Like, do you have to have an American teaching certificate? Have to? Probably not. I think they they look for that. If you don't have that, you probably, you know, there's a good chance at least the more um, selective schools won't look at you. Like, I don't have one anymore. And I keep thinking, because I... I let it lapse, but like I teach in a university, so it's like right. so you don't <laughs> that should count for something. It depends on the. Sc- I would think it depends on the school in terms of how hard and fast a rule it is. I don't have a certification for fifth grade. Right. My certification is grade seven through twelve, but th- this position opened up. Uh, the, the director definitely, after our interview at the job fair, was interested in hiring me, but I still had to interview with the middle school principal. But you know, now I guess feel like I'm kind of going back home to high school, the, the game I know. I know my school requires a teacher. It doesn't have to be American. Like we have Canadian teachers. We have, like I said, we have a handful of Colombian teachers, but you do have to have a valid teaching license. Um, I got lucky on that greenhouse. I had always kept my teaching license current because I thought it gave me credibility as a PD person to say, hey, I'm a certified teacher. So that came in handy. I probably could still get mine recertified, but Virginia required, I used to just pay the license fee every year, you know, I, <laughs> that's all they needed <laughs> to do. But then they changed it to, you had to go take a CPR class. And I was like, uh, and so I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then Wisconsin, um, one of the things that our wonderful governor did, which is not good for the profession, but is good for me, is they went back to lifetime licenses. So if you had a teaching license, it was it's a lifetime license. You just have to do a like a criminal background check every five years or something. Oh, wow. Um, now, Texas, I had to, uh, every five years, I have to send them another $80. And I have to click, a, I have to click a button on a website saying that I attended PD. So in Virginia, you had to do, um, which is the one I kept even when I lived in Texas, uh, it's 180 hours of PD that you had to prove. Like you had a documentation of it. And if you didn't have a master's, I think 90 of it had to be college courses. But once you get the master's and you're fine, it could be anything. But you had to prove it. So lesson, if you want, if you're thinking about doing international schools, think early, go to the networking websites. And typically, now this was all weird this year because of COVID, but typically those job fairs that Corey was talking about, he went to Bangkok, they have those job fairs in the States as well. You can attend those job fairs and they have like international schools from all over the world are part of those networks that Corey talked about. You bring, you literally bring a stack of your resumes and you're going to go meet with folks that have openings. And I mean, folks get hired um, sometimes on the spot like because it's usually the director of the school that attends those things and does the, does the interviewing. You can have a pretty good sense of where you might land pretty quickly. So let's say I'm a 23-year-old and then we also have, you know, a more experienced educator and they're both applying for the same position. Like what are schools looking for, or does it matter? It doesn't depend on the school, but are they looking for that more experienced person, or are they looking for fresh, new, excited, young? Yeah, I think they're they're looking for people who will do good teaching, and experience obviously helps with that. But uh, somebody who is new, who is well spoken, and has a, a clear vision for what they want to do, could also do well. But like I said, a lot of it. To, to get that resume looked at, if you know somebody at the school, that's really helpful. And like I said, that, that whole tier thing plays into this as well. Like, where do you want to go? If you're into like, hey, I just want to try a place for a couple of years and see what it's like, 
again, it's somewhat field dependent, just like it is in the States. STEM teachers are going to find more openings than social studies teachers. If you're, if you're flexible now, the more, like if you're wanting to teach in London or Paris or a, a city like that, then you're really going to need connections because that, that, those spaces are incredibly competitive. So both of you teach now in other countries. Is the school setup or the culture, like the way you teach, is it similar or is it vastly different or does it just depend on what country you're in? In Qatar, I thought it felt very different. Just, I mean, the culture was very different. And you could feel that the, the school looked different. It was a very impressive building, very you know Middle Eastern architecture and stuff. When we walked into this school, it feels like a really nice American style school. So do they run classes the same or, I mean, you know, is it every day you teach or it's an hour and a half or it's an hour? I mean, so is that aspect of it similar? Well, both places had sort of rotating schedules. So they're pretty progressive with their schedule. Yeah. And that's what I have here. We do rotating block so you can be progressive with the scheduling. The other thing we get away with that would be a, more of a struggle traditionally in the States is we do, we do pure standards-based grading. So we don't do letter grades. There's no percentages. All grades are based on uh, summatives alone, which are all graded on a four-point rubric that we create every time. So this whole partial credit, um, 93 to 100 is an A, like we don't do any of that. And then the school provides, when they send out college transcripts, there's a little one-pager they send out to the U.S. colleges equating, giving rough equivalence to our grades to the four, the ABCD scale so that colleges can make their assessments. So does that mean that Basically, students just have to have a certain standard accomplishment so they can move to the next grade. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Well, we have a fail. Like, there's a line. So, so kids on the report card they get a they get a number on a four point scale is what the grade is, and it's all based on. I mean, it's pure standards based grading. So, in our system, we have the standards that we're supposed to cover in a year, which is roughly uh, the common core, although they're making some switches now because they want to be a certified AP school. That's a whole nother podcast we need to do. And then basically what happens is I give summative assessments and then I link it to what standards did that summative cover. And then their final grade is based on their average mastery across the standards. Basically, it's really meant you come out with a true sense of, all right, based on the standards, what is your mastery of the standards of that course? Is yours similar, Corey? Like, is it sort of the same idea? At the middle school, it's all standards-based as well. And I just, on my own, um, in my AP stats classes, started doing standards-based grading back in the States. And to me, the most important fundamental change was, instead of saying tests are this percent of your grade and homework is this percent, it's this topic is this percentage of your grade. And this topic is this percentage of your grade. And once you switch that mindset, so many other things just fall into place. Things like extra credit don't have a place, they don't fit in that kind of system. It doesn't make any sense to talk about extra credit. And the conversations with students changed so profoundly. When a student wanted to improve their grade, what they would say is, I need to reassess on inference or or, whatever the, the standard was. They weren't that broad, but but it, it turned into, I need to reassess on this topic. And the conversation was about the learning, not about the percentages, the numbers. So now, so does homework count as anything for a grade at your school, Corey? No, not in the middle school. It doesn't for me either. And just for the record, for all of you teachers who think that kids won't do their homework, 
I would say roughly the same number of kids who did my ho- did homework when it was a part of their grade do their homework now, and the kids who never did their homework when it was part of the grade still don't ever do their homework now. Um, but now the grade is really it's not a behavior grade anymore because often in the states with traditional grading, it's as much a behavior grade as it is a what did they learn, right? And so we're grading, so we're no longer grading behavior. And I have students who don't often do the homework. Um, but they engage in class and they do well in the summatives, they get a good grade. So I, I really feel we're grading knowledge. Now, what we do, the kids, <laughs> the parents care, but the kids don't care, is we also have what they call life skills grades. And that's where kids' lack of doing homework, lack of engaging in class, like we're grading behavior. And it's a life skills grade. It doesn't go on their transcript. The kids couldn't care less about it. Um, but a lot of the parents do. It's like feedback for parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, sense. And so we do that. And that's where you reflect that sort of thing. But uh, I mean, I really, I find it freeing uh, to have the, have the system. Yeah. I don't know. Like, why don't we do that in the United States? Because to me, it just makes so much more sense because you're, you're actually focusing on what they're learning, not on, as you said, the behaviors. I quit grading homework ages ago. Yeah, me too. Oh my God. Who has the time? Sometimes I would still record whether students did it just for information purposes, but it was not part of the grade. And one of the things that that changed is the reason kids would do homework. They would do it to improve their learning. If they're not doing it to improve their learning, they might as well not be doing it. Yeah, it does put a different uh, spin on everything, doesn't it? It We have have an interesting policy around homework at the school, um, which... I take credit slash blame for because I came here as a consultant and helped them helped them put it together. <laughs> well, because the issue was the kids because they have unlimited retakes for summatives because the idea is really it's supposed to reflect what you know, and so frequently the kids wouldn't do their homework and wouldn't do anything to prepare for a summative. So now our policy. So as I look at homework and record it because our school has a policy that in order to retake summatives. Basically, the idea being that you have to have actively participated in the learning the first time. And then if you need additional time to master it, then we'll give it to you. But if you haven't been actively engaging in the learning the first time, then you lose the opportunity to do it again. So that we don't grade homework, but if you want to be able to retake uh, summative assessments, then you have to have shown, and one of the ways you show it is by doing your homework. I used to do a reflective piece on that where if a student wanted to retake a test, they had to fill out a little request. And you know, what, what, what is it that you want to retest? Why didn't you do well on it the first time? Which might be, I didn't prepare. It might be, I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. Uh, whatever. Um, what are you going to do to prevent this from happening again? And the first time I always said, sure, you can retake your assessment. But if it got to be a second or a third time, and they hadn't started doing those things they said they were going to do. Like, well, I'm going to start doing my homework, or I'm going to come in for help a couple times before the test. Whatever it is they said they were going to do, if they haven't done it, it's like, yeah, sorry, man, you're, uh, you're out of luck. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I love it. All right, I'm looking at our time here, and we are coming to the end of our hour. So I would like to ask a final question, and it kind of goes out to both of you, but... I watch you on Facebook and I see all your amazing pictures uh, from the countries you've been in and like the flowers that you're posting now from the Netherlands and like things like that and like your travels and it's it just seems so exciting. So this is going out to both of you since you're both in international teaching situations. What is 
like the best thing about this? And then what is maybe some of the worst things, things that people who might be considering doing this might want to think about? Well, for me, one of the, the best things is the travel. That first year of teaching in Qatar, we were in 10 different countries that year. That doesn't count uh, stopovers at airports. We actually visited 10 different countries, counting the U.S. and counting Qatar. Like I never would have had that chance if I had to stay teaching in the U.S. So that has been fantastic. Travel is such an educational experience. So now something to be cautious about that maybe you hadn't thought about, but now that you, you know. It is hard leaving your friends, your family. Um, you know, I haven't seen my kids for two years now with the pandemic. So yeah, that, that gets hard. We have a lot of friends that we left behind that we miss terribly. So. Well, and like parents and, and things like that too, right? Yeah. So that is something to really consider because you can't just see them. Tim? For me, it's a, it depends where you go. So like I have a different experience. A, I'm south instead of east. So like I'm in the same time zone as my family in the States, my kids um, and uh, my mother-in-law. So it's the same time for me as it is for them. And it's a four-hour flight. That's a reasonably inexpensive flight to get home. Um, as a matter of fact, my wife still works in the States. She actually, she spends two weeks a month with us and then two weeks in the month in the States um, doing her uh, stateside job. So we're not as removed in terms of from friends and family. I mean, I came for different reasons. Like I really, the number one reason is I love the school I teach at. Um, I'd had, I was fortunate enough to be here, have experience. They have an instructional vision that very much matches what I want to do. I don't think I could move, like I, I couldn't see myself ever being happy going to a school that I wasn't sure about in terms of their instructional vision just because I wanted to live in a certain country or live in a certain city. I mean, we picked Bogota because of the school, not because we are in love with Bogota. Now, we've come to love Bogota. It's a beautiful city and a wonderful place to live and enjoy the people we've met and our experiences here. Now, we just came this year, so our ability to travel has been really limited because we moved here in the middle of COVID. So um, we've been we've done some traveling. We're about to leave town tomorrow because it's La Semana Santa, otherwise known as Spring Break in the states. But here it's all tied to the church, so it's La Semana Santa. But uh, so we've done some in-country traveling this year. But we are looking forward to hopefully next year things opening up and um, having a chance because you just have like in Europe, same in South America, you just have much easier access. I mean, Peru's just south of here, so at some point we want to go to Machu Picchu and things like that. So there is that element of it, but I'm primarily driven because I just love this school and I love the opportunity I have. I mean, I had to give up any sense of social justice. My, my funny story is <laughs> uh, two days ago, uh, I'm in class and uh, um, a cis female, a young woman who identifies as a female, she was, had a Starbucks cup on her desk and it said Oscar on it. And I said, uh, so why do you have Oscar's coffee? And she looked at me like I was an idiot. I said, Mr. Pope, Oscar's my driver. He got my coffee for me on the way to school this morning. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, so I, don't, uh, I, don't have that, uh, I don't have that element in my career anymore. But anyway, um, I mean, the, the challenge is it, it really, as someone who had never lived in another country, I mean, there's just the adaptation any expat has. In terms of functioning in a country where I have, I mean, I'm far from fluent in Spanish. I can typically take care of myself when I need to. I definitely can order a beer and I can ask where the bathroom is. But uh, I mean, it's that's those sort of adjustments. But that would be true 
leaving the country. I mean, the other thing I would say in terms of the advantage, so I don't know, Corey, where are your kids grown and out of the house before you left? No, we ha- our son was still with us and he was willing to go or he wouldn't have gone. So he graduated from uh, Qatar Academy in Doha. That was the other. So we have two of ours. So my son's a senior this year and then we have a daughter who's in eighth grade. When you grow up in the States, because the U.S. is like one of the most powerful nations in the world, you get sort of a parochial sense of the whole world is seen through an American lens. And I really have enjoyed giving at least my two youngest kids the opportunity to gain a perspective of not, of not only the rest of the world, but even of the U.S. as seen from the outside um, has been an experience that we've treasured and are thrilled to have been able to provide. Some people are really surprised to find out that not everybody in the world really wishes they could live in the U.S. <laughs> exactly. And that I think that alone is, is something that, like you said, Tim, like it would be great for your kids to experience as well, is that the world is not U.S.-centric. And then Greenhouse, the one thing we, I think we gave short shrift to just because Corey and I don't have the experience is make sure we give folks the links to the Dodia stuff in terms of how to get involved in there because that's a whole, that's a different game. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to link to all of them because it's all very, uh, yeah, it is very different game. Absolutely. So yeah, in our show notes, make sure you check it out. We'll have all the links to all the places that were mentioned and the resources if you're interested in possibly teaching internationally. So thank you so much, Corey, for joining Tim and I and sharing your international teaching experiences. I think this will be a really helpful podcast for any educators out there who've been considering this because it has its advantages, its disadvantages, and uh, it's really nice to hear it from the two of you actually uh, sharing that. So thank you very much for joining us. There will always be those who scoff at intellectual, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.